The, the topic that we're facing today, can truth and tolerance coexist, is a big one and it's difficult and there's a good possibility that might make us a little bit uneasy in some of the conclusions that we have to come to, but we, we're trying to hold together a faithful understanding of what Scripture says, a realistic understanding of where our culture's at, and then find and decide how it is that we fit within that. And whenever I think of two things trying to coexist together, we have a slide here, um, I'm reminded of this uh, graphic. Zorak, you idiot, you've mixed incompatible species in the earth terrarium. And up there in the corner you can see a grizzly bear and a human in the little uh, terrarium. Uh, incompatible species. And so that's the question we're asking ourselves. Are truth, or is it true that truth and tolerance are incompatible species in the earth terrarium, as it were? How do these things uh, fit together? And if you'll bear with me, we need to go through some definitions here because what you'll find in this conversation is that people use these words in different ways. And in fact, the concept of truth itself is no longer a given. In fact, it was the year before last, the Oxford Dictionary, uh, the word of the year was post-truth. And we talk about now living in a time of uh, post-truth cultures where truth doesn't really matter and truth isn't that important. And for Christians, we come back and say, well, wait, we're not ready to throw in the towel yet on truth. We need to think about what is it that we mean when we're talking about truth in order to have a good conversation about whether or not it can coexist with tolerance. And so for Christians, historically speaking, there have been three aspects of truth that have been very important for us as we decide what is true and what isn't. And the first of those is, is the truth claim internally consistent? Does it make sense within itself? We would say this is kind of common sense. Does, does it make sense? So if I said to you, um, I have a friend uh, who's a bachelor, and his wife's name is Susan, you'd say, no, that, there's, there's something wrong there. That, that categorically isn't what that type of thing means. It, it doesn't make sense internally. There isn't consistency there. Now, it's not enough for something to be internally consistent. It also has to correspond to reality in a way that we can actually observe it and experience it and measure it. And so all of fantasy and fiction and a lot of our great stories have great internal coherence to them, but they don't correspond to the way that our world works and that we live in. Take the Lord of the Rings, for example. Great big story, right? The times, the places, the people, it all fits together. But why do we not believe that's true? Well, I've never been out for a morning jog and been chased by an orc. Uh, and so I was like, that's fantasy. That's, it's a fascinating story, but it doesn't match the reality of the world that I live in. So for something to be true, it needs to be internally consistent and it has to correspond to reality, and I would say that for us to be interested in it, it also has to be livable. There are galactic bodies, ice giants, around Saturn that have a high enough atmospheric pressure and a low enough gravitational force that if you were there and you had a hand glider and flippers, you could fly under human power. That's awesome. Why does nobody teach us this? Well, because it's like four degrees Kelvin there, and you would die instantly if you showed up. So, it's theoretically true, but it has no bearing and no impact on my life. And so we're looking for things that are internally consistent, that correspond to reality, and that are livable in meaningful ways. And then you get a character like Jesus who shows up and says, I am the way. You talk about uh, internal consistency, correspondence, does it apply to my life, and the livability, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And in making a statement like that, Jesus is talking about truth not as a metaphysical intellectual concept that is irrelevant, but as a way of saying the purpose of truth is to put us in relationship with the Heavenly Father. Truth is not neutral, it has an agenda, and it's pointing us into a relationship with ultimate reality, which is a personal, loving creator. And so as Christians, we do believe that there is truth and that it exists, and that's exactly what gets us in trouble in some of our cultural conversations, because the argument against that is, is right at the moment when you start saying there's actual right and wrong, that's where all of the bigots come from, and all of the intolerant people, and all of the narrow-minded people, and all the exclusive people come from, and that's the problem with the world, is that people hold on to 
ideas of truth, and that's what creates friction. And so can that definition of there actually being truth, can that coexist with our cultural mood of pushing for um, and embracing toleration as our highest virtue? Can those fit together? Well, there was a country that was just getting started one time that thought he would try this out. You might have heard of uh, your southern neighbor, the United States. And there's a guy named Noah Webster who wrote the Webster's Dictionary. Um, people considered him, quote, an idiot in his lifetime because he spent his life studying 26 languages to write the definition of 70,000 different words. And as the U.S. was uh, coming into its formation, it was a five-year-old country, he wrote this line about America. He's, and this, this is a little bit, a little bit uh, well, we'll evaluate whether or not it's true, but this is what he wrote. So he said, America founds her empire on the idea of universal toleration. She admits all religions into her bosom. She secures the sacred rights of every individual. And, astonishing absurdity to the Europeans, she sees a thousand discordant opinions live in the strictest harmony. It will finally raise her to a pitch of greatness and luster before which the glory of ancient Greece and Rome shall dwindle to a point and the splendor of modern empires fade into obscurity. This is Webster's, like, toleration. Woo, it's going to make America awesome. And so my question to you is, as Canadians, when you look at the U.S. news, do you see a thousand discordant opinions living in the strictest harmony? <laughs> Nobody? Nobody does? Oh, that's amazing. Nobody in the first service saw that either. Um, what happened? Webster's like, our ability to tolerate and embrace these different ideas and hold them in strictest harmony is going to be what makes us awesome. What happened? And I think everybody in America would look to to Canada and say, yeah, it's a more tolerant um, community and, and country in a lot of ways. But what I'm saying is, from this perspective, is just because it was tolerant at one point doesn't mean that it stays that way indefinitely. And so we have to ask ourselves, A, how do we get to where God wants us to go in relationships, and what happened to this experiment? Why did this not work out the way that Webster saw it happening? Two things. Well, actually, there's about 15 more things I'm going to say. But on this topic, um, you'll notice there's a shift in the definition of toleration, or a shift in the understanding of where toleration is coming from, and this is where we have to be careful. When Webster talked about toleration, he was not talking about it as the highest possible virtue in a culture. Remember, he said, um, she secures the sacred rights of every individual. And so he was basing his concept on the possibility of toleration on a culture that understood that there was a sanctity to human life, that people were important, full stop independently of their ideas and their actions, that they had an actual value. And so as Christians, we, of course, affirm all people are created equally. That does not mean we believe that all ideas are created equally. People have an equal value. And so for Webster, the sanctity, the truth of the value of human life was foundational to the possibility of toleration. Toleration was not the highest goal. Truth was the most important thing, and toleration was the derivative of the truth that all people were created to be equal. You see the difference there? The goal isn't toleration. You can't shoot for toleration and get it. You can get it if it's a byproduct of truth, but you can't go straight to it. And so that's the thing that we've lost in the country that I come from, is the belief that people are valuable independently of the things that they believe. And that's why we kind of slide in all this kind of name-calling and random stuff that isn't that helpful. Um, but we have to keep that in mind, that toleration is not the highest cultural virtue. And that's where we come into a rub with the world around us. Part of the reason that those who aren't Christians feel that the Christians are intolerant toward them comes from the fundamental way in which we view this distinction. It's different. 
Think about the way that most of our world uh, constructs their own identity. So think about uh, maybe these categories. You're thinking, you're feeling, and you're doing. What you think about, what you're feeling, and what you're doing. Those provide the foundation of your identity. So if you, it's almost like a milk stool, three legs right in the top. You have an identity at the top, and based off of what you feel, what you think, and what you do, you construct and build up this identity on top. And if you think about the way that you introduce yourself, the questions people ask as they try to assign value to you, hey, how are you feeling? What are you thinking about today? What do you do? Those are natural things that we get into to construct an identity like that. Now, what happens is, is that if you have an identity that is based off of an activity, and then that activity comes under scrutiny, you're not going to sense that as a critique of the activity. You're going to see that as undermining the actual foundation of who you are. It's a threat to your identity. And this is why a phrase like, uh, hate the sin and love the sinner, doesn't track unless you're a Christian. You, it, because the person's identity is based on that action, and if you're chepping away underneath them, they feel that as a personal threat. And the reason that it's easy for Christians to do this in an accidental way is that that is not the concept of how we think about our identity. We think that who we are is a gift to us from God, that we're made in the image of God, that we have an inherent value, and based off of who we are, then our thinking and our feeling and our doing flow out of that. And so when you say to me, I think Christian apologists are idiots. Um, a critique of the activity that, and we can discuss that. Um, uh, a critique of the activity that I do, I don't sense that as a threat to who I am. It's a critique of an activity that I do, but it's not, a, it's not who I am. And so as Christians coming in, that we've had this uh, deep stability in how we understand ourselves, but do you see the difference in that? The milk stool gets flipped upside down. And so it's easy for us to critique an activity, which we see as just a critique of an activity, but the other person feels like it's a, a direct threat to who they are. And so we have this um, identity miscommunication and misfiring as we're talking to each other culturally. And that's one of the big problems that Christians have in communicating with non-Christians. The second one is this. The second problem we have with toleration is toleration isn't really a very biblical concept. Look it up sometime. There are very few places in English translations where the word tolerance or toleration is used, and it's almost exclusively a negative thing. Like, well, that doesn't sound good, right? Um, it's used in times like when Jesus is speaking to the churches at the beginning of Revelation. I hold this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Um, you're like, ah, what's going on here? Um, tolerance doesn't show up biblically as a word, so what is going on? How do we handle this? And we start seeing that, that Jesus is a highly intolerant person. He is highly intolerant of any type of injustice, of any type of oppression. He does not put up with and does not tolerate stoning women, running cattle through temples, whacking people with swords. The list goes on and on. He has a zero bullying policy, a zero tolerance for bullying. Um, Jesus draws a fine line of what is right and wrong. And so we, have, we always say, well, Jesus, of course, you know, we like Jesus because he's, you know, uh, somebody once asked me, did God get saved between the Old and the New Testament? Um, you have this wrathful, angry God, and then the mellow hippie Jesus showed up and got him to tone it down a little bit. Um, that's a whole other topic about the consistency and the character and nature of God. But we have, the, we have this feel like, oh, we wouldn't like Jesus. He's tolerant. But that's not actually the way that he frames his con conversations. Um, and what we, what's helpful to remember is that Jesus did not critique things and wasn't intolerant of things necessarily because of what he was against. It's because it fell short of what he was for. And there's a dangerous Christians that we can collectively come up with a definition of who we are based off of what we aren't. Or as Canadians be like, well, at least we're not like people in the U.S. Um, 
you, we want to have something positive that our, our identity is based around, not just the absence of something. And what one theologian, um, and I, I think this is a helpful way of, of phrasing it, um, put it like this. He said, as Jesus' relationship with tax collectors illustrates, true love combines a radical outreach to sinners with an intensification of God's ethical demand. On one hand, Jesus spoke out against the love of money and sided with the poor. On the other hand, he fraternized with tax collectors who profited from oppressing the poor financially. The Pharisees were unable to get their theological imaginations around these two poles. And I would say that much of our world is too. How did Jesus do that? He loved these people, but didn't put up with the shenanigans that they were up to. And it's this attitude by which we could say, quote, unquote, Jesus is intolerant. And I kind of don't want to say that because tolerance is held in such high esteem. But there's a sense in which it's the attitude by which Jesus critiqued the actions in these people's lives that they didn't experience it as intolerance. They knew that Jesus loved them. They knew that Jesus cared for them. And in doing so, when he made suggestions and called them into more beautiful things, they didn't feel it as a threat to who they were. They felt it as an invitation into something bigger and more beautiful and far warmer and experienced. And so that is the project that we have to embrace in our minds. When somebody critiques me and I know that they really care for me, I don't experience it as opposition. It's, it's a loving thing that they're speaking it because they really genuinely care about it. And so as followers of Jesus, we're called to be intolerant of anything that denigrates the life and purpose of another person. And following this type of truth will always put us in tension with that which seeks to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And Jesus would have none of it, and neither should we. There were uh, two guys who went to seminary together. One went off to pastor a church in the city, and one went off to pastor a church in the mountains. And uh, a couple years passed, and the guy in the city decided that he would surprise visit the guy in the mountains, and so he drove out there to find this guy. No cell phone service. Phone died. He got lost. It was late. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning. The only place that was open in town was a bar. And so he goes into the bar, and he says, Hey, I'm looking for pastor so-and-so. Um, and this guy jumps off the stool, runs over, and grabs him and says, if you say anything bad about that man, I'll kill you. And he's like, no, I don't have anything bad to say about him. I just want to know where he lives. And they're like, oh, okay, it's fine. And so he found his friend, and he went to his house. He's like, what kind of ministry are you running here? The town drunk was about to kill me on your behalf. Um, I love that story. Why? Because even though they had radically distinct lifestyles, this man knew this guy cares for me and was willing to defend him, even though they had completely different lifestyles. And you know examples of that too, I hope, and I'm sure, and I challenge you to look for those of ways in which you can disagree with people, but to the point that they know that you genuinely care for them. I'm not saying that you should be cultivating people that will kill other people on your behalf, but um, that people would get a sense of the things that you speak into their life are really done out of a heart of love. So we've talked about truth, we've talked about Jesus' model and coming into this, and then we have to stop and realize Toleration is a bit of a funny word because the way that we use it most often isn't good. So I spent the night at Rusty's house. I say, well, how was Rusty's company? It was tolerable. <laughs> how was the food you had that Rusty made you? It was tolerable. Yeah, that's not a compliment, is it? Think about the way that to tolerance is usually used. And there's another uh, subtle uh, and slightly more insidious way in which we use it, in which it's a, a statement of our moral superiority, of like, you really annoy me, and you're a burden to me, but since I'm awesome, I can handle it. Uh, I can tolerate you. I can put up with you. That, those aren't statements of love. Those aren't statements of affirmation. And so it, it seems to be that our culture is 
is recognizing that there's something that goes beyond toleration, but they can't figure out what it is. Toleration isn't the best, but what goes beyond that? And there's a question mark there of what is better than toleration. It's not really that we just want toleration, it's just the best that we can do. This is the, the highest common denominator that we can figure out, but we have a sense that there's something that's better than that, something that goes beyond it. So it's not really because we want toleration, we just can't think of anything better. That's toleration. For coexistence, I was on a panel at a college a year or two ago. It was a Buddhist, an atheist, a Muslim, a rabbi, and myself. And the, title, and the topic was, can we truly coexist? And we gave little introduction statements, and then students asked questions to us. And I was the last one to go, and everybody was kind of giving these nice kumbaya answers. Um, and he got to me, and I said, well, is coexistence really the goal? Is this what we're shooting for? And is it a good one? Can't, can't we do better than just exist quietly beside each other? What's this say about our concept of community? And they all said, yeah, maybe actually that isn't the best goal. I would say that in some ways, uh, again, it's one of those things where it's the best that we can do. Coexistence shouldn't be the goal. Uh, if it is, it's a lousy one. We can do better than that as Christians. Do you guys have the uh, coexist bumper stickers, Canada? You see those? Those are always fun. It's like labeling your car. I know more about these religions than the people in these religions know. Um, well, intolerant in those bumper stickers. But um, is that really what we can shoot for? And so this is what I'm challenging. I'm challenging you that I would rather be, and this is what I told the students when I was speaking during that panel, I would rather be loved than tolerated. Jesus dealt in terms of love, and we're seeking to be tolerated. Our expectation is far too low, because a tolerance that's devoid of love is far inferior to an intolerance in the context of love. I tell my son, hey, don't touch that soap. It's hot. Hey, don't do this. Hey, do this. It's not because like, I'm just maniacal and want to see you squirm and be miserable. Same thing. God doesn't tell us things like that, because he knows what's best for us. And so when we can sense that we're instructed and we're critiqued and we're guided out of love, not just because somebody opposes us, that's an entirely different situation. And so the challenge for us as Christians is to be intolerant like Jesus was. Uh, I don't know that you should quote that out of context. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus was able to hold love and judgment together at the same time. And that's like the unicorn of our time. There's, there's a, a common belief that if you disagree with me, you hate me. That's the language of our time. And Jesus was able to have strict moral guidelines. He intensified the ethical demands of the Old Testament and yet goes down in history as the most loving person ever. And so true love does not exist in the absence of judgment. True love exists in the presence of, just, of judgment. When you actually know who I am and still love me, that's a deeper definition of love than making sure that you stay over there and I can put up with you at a distance. It's a different thing. And so the challenge is us for us to be like Christ in that we... People can't conceive of a higher virtue of tolerance, um, and the problem is, is that their view is just too low. There's something better than that. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it that Christ offers? Paul taught the Romans in Romans 12, he said, live at peace with everyone as far as it depends on you. I think that's what he said. Or did he say, coexist with everyone? No, he said, live at peace with everyone as far as it depends on you. Jesus says, my coexistence I give you. No, he said, my, my peace I give you but not as the world gives it. You think? Like, look what happened to his disciples after that. It wasn't really a peaceful thing. It, it was a deeper level type of peace 
impossibility for human relationship that Jesus was living with us. And so Jesus' command was not to coexist with our neighbors, his com- with our neighbors. Jesus' command was for us to love our neighbors. And so rather than settling for coexistence, we seek to live at peace. And rather than merely tolerating, we seek to love. And the church must be the group that does it. It must be the plausibility structure. When we talk about this theoretically, it sounds nice, but there has to be a group of people that can actually embody it. And in all the cultures of the world, I can't think of another institution that can actually do this other than the church. This is on us. If this is reality, we are going to have to be the people who do it because we have Jesus as a model who teaches us to do it, and we have the Holy Spirit that enables us. We have the grace of God that provides boundaries and helps us grow into Christ-likeness so that this can be a real thing. And what happens, therefore, is that we end up finding ourselves not being a church of protest, but a proactive church. We should be very careful about protesting things in culture that we're not modeling a better alternative to. And so as we think about the intersection of love and justice, about peace that goes beyond coexistence and love that goes beyond toleration, the church has to be the place where that becomes visible. That is the challenge for us individually, but also collectively. One writer put it like this, speaking about the the condition of the church in the states. So if you want to absolve yourself of this applying to you, you can, but maybe it does. He says, we are literally seeking out our neighbors that we love as ourselves. That is, we love them for their resemblance to us. But that's not what Jesus meant. He answers the lawyer's questions with the parable of the Good Samaritan, implying that we can't truly love others if we're not willing to cross the boundaries that separate one tribe from another. Sounds great, doesn't it? Man, that's hard to do in real life. That's going to put us in, well, actually, I realize why that's hard to do here is because it's freezing cold outside. How would you ever get over to your neighbor's house? Um, (laughs) Crossing over to visit the other tribe? You'll die on the way there. Um, But it's real. You could easily pull up to your house. The garage door goes up. You go in. The garage door goes down. You watch Netflix until things fall out in the the spring, um, and you move on, right? Um, The church is going to have to be proactive if you're going to generate in your community a reputation of Christ's likeness. It's a proactive leap and push and a crossing of these boundaries that separate one tribe from another. And you know what? It's going to be hard. Jesus said it was going to be hard. That's how I know it's going to be hard. (laughs) Um, And those of you who have tried it know that it's going to be hard. The cost is real. And why is it that we can do things that are difficult? And it comes down to this, is that ultimately we aren't getting our directives and our distinctives and our commands from our culture. We have to look to God for the foundation of these things. That's why it's critical that we spend time together in Scripture, in the Word, discerning what is true. There's a very unsettling verse in 1 Peter 2, 23-24, around in there, that says, Jesus left you an example. And it talks about the way that he suffered. It says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he was threatened, he didn't respond. What did he do? Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so, in the face of critiques and criticism and ridicule and threats, Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so there's a sense in which we won't be able to provide justice for everything in our community. We can work hard for that, but God ultimately is going to have to do that. And as you seek to cross boundaries and push into culture in ways that aren't necessarily always warmly received, there's going to be opposition in that, but we have to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly that the right thing will be done in the long run. 
we have to recognize that the definition of love that we're using comes from God. We don't accept our culture's definition of what it means to love. We have to get that from God. Everybody in our world is wanting love and justice, and nobody can define it. It would be hilarious if it wasn't tragically sad. He's, find somebody sometime at like a social justice booth and say, hey, I'm really excited about this. I think this is an important topic. Can you tell me what you mean by justice? We want it, and we as Christians have this beautiful gift of having definitions and standards and, and, and the person of God made manifest before us that we can see what this looks like, and we have this as a source of information that is a beautiful thing. And what it allows us to do is it allows us to zoom out, just like Jesus did, just like Stephen did. What did Jesus pray when he's being killed? Father, forgive them. That's what they're doing. I, I see the big picture. I see what's going on. Stephen, same thing. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is small potatoes compared to the big picture of what God's doing. And so we gain a stability and a hope that the world is desperately seeking because we get our foundation from outside of ourselves and from outside of our culture. And so we are intolerant of injustice, but not for social reasons. They're for deeply theological reasons because what is not good falls far short of what God desires for his people. And so the project for the modern Christian is to love people that merely want to be tolerated. We have to create a higher vision. In our cultural conflicts and cultural clashes, it's not necessarily a direct full-on headbutt and assault. And, um, it's casting a higher vision, a better, a bigger picture, a more, more full understanding of what it is that God is inviting us into. And maybe that is, the, that is the way that Jesus went about. He often taunted people into the next realm of thinking. What if your vision is far too low? What if there is something that's better than this? And we see this expressed in the life of Jesus and his attitude toward opposition. In Luke chapter 19, when he's coming into uh, Jerusalem, he knows they're going to kill him. And he looks out over Jerusalem, and what does he do? Is he angry? No. Is he afraid? No. That characterizes actually a pretty good percentage of American Christianity right now. Fear and anger. Jesus is not angry. He's not afraid. He weeps. He says, ah, Jerusalem, if only you knew the things that made for peace. But it's hidden from your eyes. That is our posture in our community as Christians. Ah, there's something so good here and you just missed the exit. Come on. Come be part of this. I know you want coexistence and toleration, but there's something better than that. There's something far more. Can we be people that help lift the eyes of others? And we don't come in with our chest puffed out, all proud because of our truth. The truth that we believe is fundamentally humbling because we say there is a holy, righteous God who is the one who saves me, not our own awesomeness. It's completely egalitarian in the sense it's not based off of our merit. It's based off of the goodness of who God is, that he invites us into his family. Christianity can't be proud if we take our truth seriously. And so it's a call to go deeper and to remember what the foundational levels of our behavior, where they come from, the grace of God. And in doing so, we will be able to balance these things together that hold love and judgment in a way that people can relate to us in ways that are truly encouraging and truly invites and truly calls people in. I want to um, read to you a passage from 1 John chapter 1. And... Another critique that I would have as, as I'm talking about this idea of inviting people in is that toleration doesn't invite. Toleration is not an inviting thing. It's a, hey, you do your thing. And so it, it in essence, holds 
communities and different groups of people at a distance while in the face of saying, um, we like you. And I can point to a whole bunch of um, examples of that in American culture where that's been a problem if you can't think of any immediately in your mind and want to talk about it. But listen to the joy that 1 John um, uh, just oozes out of this. So this is 1 John, uh, the first four chapters. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. He's saying, hey, this is real. Um, we've touched it. He's doing apologetics here. What's the reason for your hope? Well, we've seen this. Our hands have touched. This we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim this to you, what we have seen and heard. Why? Why, Why is this written? What's the purpose of this? We proclaim this to you because what's going to happen? Why is this book written? Why did these men live and die for this? We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. Not that you can coexist with us and not that we can tolerate each other, but that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this, verse 4, to make our joy complete. And so there's a sense of we have tasted and touched and seen something that is great and wonderful and beautiful and we want you to be part of it. And we're not going to be happy until you can participate in this beautifully sweet thing with us. And so our Christian view of this is, is inherently invitational. May our joy be complete. We can go so far beyond mere tolerance and coexistence. And so, can truth and tolerance coexist? To summarize quickly as we bring this to a close. No, they can't. And for this reason, that truth pushes us into the depth of relationship that transcends mere coexistence. Truth and tolerance, if the truth is inherently relational, as revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, then truth will push us into the depths of relationship that transcend mere toleration and coexistence. We can do better than the world can do as a church because we have a better vision of what it is that is true in this world. And so as we seek for ourselves to recognize that we are people made in the image of God and that there is a good and holy God, ultimate reality is a personal loving creator. Our salvation comes when our understanding of our true selves becomes in proper relationship with ultimate reality. When Nathan, made in the image of God, comes into proper relationship with an ultimate, holy, almighty God through what Christ has done, then we see the fullness of what it is that God has intended for us uh, coming to a fullness. The truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so our invitation to truth and our invitation to Christ is not just for forgiveness. That's a prerequisite to the real goal, which is relationship. And we have the privilege of following Jesus in a way that isn't closed-minded, it isn't closed-door, it isn't narrow, but it, we are running through the parade of life, outstretching our arms and saying, come, come be with us, and may our joy be complete.